we've been in this sermon series on Genesis chapters 1 through 11 since late September, and we'll probably finish in about a month, taking a break next Sunday for Easter with a resurrection grace story. But we're looking at beginnings, especially the beginning of the relationship between the Creator and humanity, created in His image. Sadly, it's a relationship that was damaged by sin very early on, and we might say beyond repair, except for the mercy that God promises to provide in rescue and salvation. We see the beginnings of that promise in the life of Noah, and we'll pick up with the account of Noah in Genesis chapter 9, starting at verse 1. If you're able to, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Genesis 9, verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I give you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it, still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each human being, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you... Be fruitful and increase in number, multiply in the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said... This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds... I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, move among us, move in us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would say to us in this time. We give you praise. We ask these things for the glory of Jesus and for the good of us, his bride. Amen. Please be seated. We'll start with um, Eden, take two. 
pointing back to the Garden of Eden. So here, here we are in Genesis chapter 9. Noah, his family, all the animals are off the boat onto dry land. The first thing Noah did back in chapter 8 was to make an altar and provide sacrifices on it. God smelled the pleasing aroma, and this was his response, even though every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was still evil. God promised to never again bring this kind of worldwide destruction. That brings us to chapter 9, and it's a new beginning. But there's an obvious connection back to the beginning, Genesis 1, when God created Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them. And in chapter 1, verse 28, right after that creation moment, God gives what's known as the cultural mandate. This is what it says. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the entire animal kingdom. And then the very next verse, after this statement of humanity's purpose, the very next verse says, I give you every seed-bearing plant and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Fascinating. This is your God-given, God-designed purpose on earth, and you're going to need some fuel for your bodies because cultural mandate is a lot of work. That's Genesis chapter 1. So when we turn to Genesis chapter 9, our text for this morning, verse 1, to quote Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And then verse 3 adds this, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I give you the green plants, I now give you everything. Cultural mandate, fuel for the work. Genesis 1, Genesis 9. And by the way, the upside of worldwide disaster is that now there is steak for dinner, not just vegetables. But there's something that's very different here from what we find in Genesis chapter 1. Very, very different. And it's related to steak for dinner. This charge that God gives to humanity to rule over the rest of creation now involves dread and fear of humans by the entire animal kingdom, which makes perfect sense. We want to eat it. They run away. But at its core, there is now enmity in creation. There's animosity. There's fear. That wasn't there before in Genesis 1 and 2, in the paradise of the Garden of Eden. Verse 4 continues this theme with a warning. Don't eat meat with lifeblood still in it. Really interesting. New beginnings, the renewal of all creation, fresh start. And this is what God says in verse 4. Don't eat meat with lifeblood in it. Why? Blood equals life. And it is sacred. It's not to be consumed. All life comes from God. We won't take the time to unpack that this morning because verse 5 is um, even more important and it has an even stronger warning that to shed the blood of another human being, murder, is absolutely forbidden and it gets two verses to emphasize this strongest warning for one reason. 
Man and woman alone, uniquely, have been created in the image of God. You may not ever take the life of another image-bearing creature. You can take the life of an animal for food, harvesting it to sustain yourself and your family, but never another image-bearer. That's what sets us apart from all of the rest of the animal kingdom. Every human being, regardless of ability or disability, regardless of genius, intellect, or mental handicap, regardless of moral depravity or a pure heart that reflects the heart of God in godliness, in righteousness, regardless of those differences, every human being has inherent dignity because of their God-designed reflection of who he is. The image of God in every human being. Every human being has that dignity, regardless of faith or lack thereof. So, taking the life of another image bearer is absolutely forbidden. We can say from the rest of the Bible, this doesn't just mean avoiding homicide. It also means defending the most vulnerable among us, from the unborn to the most dependent elderly. It means fighting for justice against abusers, preserving the dignity of life, the safety of life. It means speaking out against racism, which claims that one race has greater value and dignity than another. It comes back to equal image-bearing ability that God has planted in every human being. What about capital punishment? That's what everyone wants to know when coming across Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. Is Genesis 9, 6 a simple defense of death row? And again, we can't unpack that fully on a Sunday morning, but let me simply say this. The principle of capital punishment is not only allowed here, but it sure seems like it's commanded. In Exodus, the law of God given through Moses to the Israelites will later on affirm this. But the principle is different than acting on that principle. And I would submit to you today, acting on that principle today, proving guilt beyond any reasonable doubt, preserving justice, which includes never condemning an innocent man, that is so very difficult to achieve, especially in a society that is filled with biases, especially the bias called racism. That should make us really cautious in pursuing a kind of justice that cannot be undone the taking of another's life. Ultimately, what we should take away from these verses here is that God is the one who will demand an accounting. And we read that three times in verse 5. God is the one who will demand an accounting. It should make us pretty cautious. That's Eden take two. It's a glance back. It's renewing the beginning if you will, now with Noah and his family. That, that moves us, secondly, to 
the divine promise we find at the heart of this passage. There's an incredibly important word that showed up for the first time in the Bible back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. It's the Hebrew word berit, and it's simply covenant. It occurs 290 times in the Old Testament. Incredibly important word. So back in chapter 6, when God revealed his plan to bring the flood on the earth, he said to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. This is my plan of judgment, but God, those are gospel words, I will save you, I will rescue you. I have a different plan for you, Noah. A covenant is a bond It's a promise that binds two parties together. It's a commitment that establishes and defines a relationship between the two parties. But but a covenant, biblically speaking, is more than a marriage vow that a, a man and a woman share in a wedding ceremony. That's an appropriate description, but it's more than that when we come to covenants in the Bible. A biblical covenant is initiated by God. It flows out of his sovereign will. He desires to do this. He intends to do this, and he will keep that promise with a commitment so strong that life and death are at stake. It's God saying, I make this promise to you, with a commitment so strong that if I break it, may death come to me. And it sounds the same, but it's different. It's also God saying, I will keep this vow even if it costs me my own life. Biblical covenant initiated by God is so strong that life, or, life and death are, are at stake. So what promise does he make to Noah? He makes the promise of rescue and renewal. In other words, Noah, my creation has been torn apart by humanity's sin, but I will preserve you and your family and through you the rest of creation. Now, we're on the other side of that promise. The flood has passed. Noah and his family and all the animals get off the ark onto dry ground, and in Genesis 9, we might say God's promise is fulfilled. He rescued Noah. Now he's going to renew the earth. But verse 9 repeats this language, 9-9. I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And by the way, don't, don't take the now as if it's happening for the first time. It's a word that simply means behold or look. It's still the same promise to rescue, to save, to renew, but now there's more to it. The biblical covenants are progressive, we say, because they reveal more and more detail of God's intent to save. They, they give us more reason to praise God and wonder that his salvation has that level of detail and he will go to that extent to keep his promise. So here's another layer of the same promise. It's not just to Noah, but also to his descendants. And this promise to rescue and save and renew is not only to humans, but about all living creatures. Those words, and with every living creature, show up twice in verse 10, and then again in 12, 15, 16, 17. 
obviously a really important element of the scope of God's promise to rescue and to save through Noah. But verse 13 is the most striking, I think. It's the most surprising. God says, this is the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. This promise has global implications. And verse 16, we find out it's everlasting. Here's one implication. We could probably draw out three or four, but here's one. The earth... The physical God-designed creation is not going away. It won't disappear so God's people can float on clouds in heaven in disembodied uh, states. The end point of history, where this is all headed, involves God's people made new bodily in resurrection, living on God's renewed world the new heavens and the new earth. And so, biblically speaking, we don't really go to heaven. Heaven comes down to us. For those who are of God through faith in Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth are one reality, two dimensions that at the end of history will become one. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It's really a fascinating section of uh, Romans 8, this, this, this amazing chapter talking about the physical creation waiting for its liberation. It's, it's in bondage to decay. Why? Because of humanity's sin. But God will renew the earth. His covenant was, is with the earth as well. As, uh, beyond his covenant with humanity made in his image and all living creatures. In a nutshell, our sin has caused our world, our created order, to break down, to decay, to lose its luster that God intended. Things have become grayer because of our sin. But God's promise to save includes the renewal of the earth, making all things new. So yes, we should take care of it not abuse it, not waste its resources. We should worry about signs of stress on the earth, like increasing natural disasters and pollution and droughts. Speaking of natural phenomena, what about rainbows? That's where we go lastly. And we're going to talk about a a one-word forbearance. Before we get there, though, Um, Again, here's where we are. Back in Genesis chapter 6, the sin of humanity was so out of control that God hit the reset button with the flood. And afterwards, the world's all good, right? So why is the first instruction from the Lord this message? There's going to be killing. 
And so I'm warning everybody about the shedding of blood. Isn't that striking? God hits the reset button. Let's start over. Let's cleanse this polluted earth. And really the first thing God says is, there's going to be murder, by the way. Why does he say that? Because sin has not been eliminated. The flood, God's intent with the flood was never to think that the sin in the hearts of humanity could be eradicated. One author said that um, in addition to Noah and his family and all the animals, what got on the ark and survived the flood was sin. 8.21 says this. Remember, um, Genesis 8 is after the flood, okay? This is what it says. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. We might insert, is still evil from childhood. It repeats Genesis 6-5, which was before the flood. Very similar wording right there. It is still true that every inclination of the human heart is evil. Nothing has changed from that standpoint. And it's not that God's flooding judgment didn't work. It was never his intent to think that water could simply wash away the sin of human hearts. This is where the sign of God's covenant promise comes into play. The rainbow in verse 13. It's simply the the Hebrew word keshet, which means bow, as in a bow and arrow, as in an ancient weapon of warfare. So when God says, I have set my bow in the clouds, it's as if he is communicating that he's hanging up his weapon. It's no longer in his hands, aiming judgment at humanity whose sin, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart, evil, deserves judgment. God is saying, I'm hanging up my bow. It's on the wall. Not in my hands. It's not loaded. The weapon is is unarmed. And so for now, at least, he will not aim his justice at all mankind. And verses 14 and 15 reinforce this. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow, or the bow, keshet, appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. It's, it's interesting, the other three uses of this word keshet in the Bible that um, have the context of the clouds and therefore is appropriately translated rainbow rather than bow are in Ezekiel chapter 1, Revelation 4, and Revelation 10. And in Ezekiel chapter 1, the rainbow is part of the radiant glory that surrounds the Lord in this vision. It's the same in Revelation chapter 4. The rainbow encircles the throne of God. But in Revelation 10, the rainbow is above the head of a mighty angel who is robed in a cloud whose job it is to bring God's judgment upon the earth. What do we draw from this? God's glory is displayed in his right to extend mercy and God's glory is displayed in his right to bring righteous judgment on sinful humanity. 
I was on our um, home mortgage website this week, setting up something, and on the homepage was this big call-out box with a message, important, and a big button at the bottom. The button had these words, request forbearance. In a nutshell, if COVID has impacted you economically, this bank is saying, we will let you delay making payments against your debt. You don't have to pay what you owe for now. From the time God made these covenant promises to Noah, way back when, to the time of the first century, there's a sense in which God's mercy prevailed because he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He said, you don't have to pay the debt that your sin owes for now until first century, his mercy intersected with his judgment. And all the destructive but righteous force of his will poured out in a flood once again. Did God break his promise that he made to Noah never again? He did not break that promise. Did God change his mind, thought better of his covenant with Noah? No, he did not. Listen to one of the most amazing passages in all of Scripture. Romans chapter 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God had promised through Noah never again to bring a destructive flood on all mankind and on the earth. Instead, what he did to maintain his righteousness, because a judge who looks away from crime is not righteous, it's not just, in order to maintain his righteousness and to keep his promise to Noah, an everlasting covenant to never again destroy the earth and all of humanity and all living creatures, In order to maintain his justice and righteousness, God the Father poured out the flood of his judgment upon the Son, Jesus, while he was on the cross. Everlasting covenant, always to be kept. This was the way he kept it. To be just, again, God responds as a judge must respond to crime And sin is the ultimate crime against the king of all kings who is perfect and righteous and pure. But in order to justify, Romans 3, in order to declare a sinner no longer under judgment for those who have faith, not for those who are morally blameless and who deserve this, there are none, Romans 3 had earlier said. In order to justify anyone in mercy, to keep his promise through Noah, the father asked the son to suffer the spiritual penalty of physical, spiritual, eternal death, hell, on the cross on behalf of anyone who would believe. 
This is how mercy and judgment intersect. This is how I will never again do this to you becomes I will do it to my son. I promise you with this commitment that I will not break it even if it costs me my own life, which it did. The life of God the Son, Jesus. All so that by faith sinners like us might be rescued. Is this what you believe? On Palm Sunday. You know, you all know when a rainbow appears, right? It never shows up on a bright sunny day. Nobody thinks to look for the rainbow on a bright sunny day. The rainbow only appears after the storm. After suffering and struggle and fearful moments and even after death, it's no different with the events of Holy Week that begin today on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday seemed like a sunny day. The Messiah of Israel had come, a parade in his honor as he entered Jerusalem to claim his throne. But it was more like the eye of the storm, a calm after and a calm before the worst The jubilant mood turned sour pretty quickly and a parade turned into an execution on Friday. Neither the religious nor political leaders nor the crowds got what their sinful hearts wanted out of Jesus. The worst storm in all of history, the most destructive flood to ever be poured out on Friday afternoon, God the Son suffering hell on the cross, though he was sinlessly perfect and deserved none of it. The rainbow only comes after the storm. But God keeps his promise, and he brings glory and renewal and new life, even through suffering even from death, because he is the God who raises the dead. He is the Lord of resurrection. This is the gospel according to Genesis. Let's pray. Lord, the point of all history, the climactic moment that makes sense of everything is the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb on the third day. We would have no hope without Jesus. There would be no renewal without Jesus. You would have to break your word that you made to Noah all those years ago if it were not for Jesus. But you intended to have a people for yourself, though we are sinners. You intended to rescue and save and renew and even resurrect. And you made it all possible through your Son, our Savior. Lord, as we enter Holy Week, cause these thoughts that are be be above and beyond any other thought, cause those thoughts of gospel to remain on our minds to be recalled 
to, to bring us to grief over our sin and then wonder over our salvation as we trust in this Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.